For our final At The Flicks Halloween show of the year, Graham and I are joined by actor, theatre manager and all-round good guy, Paul Scott. Hi Paul, welcome to the show. Hi gents, nice to be with you again. Yes, now recently we spoke to Paul on another podcast, Joe Darren's Beautiful Universe, about Paul's top 10 favourite sci-fi features. And if you haven't heard Paul's excellent choices, please give that a listen. And one thing that surprised me about your choices, Paul, uh, the number of older British films in there, and one in particular, The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Oh, yes. Classic. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) It was a film I'd forgotten about. And as you said in that show, it's so relevant today. It's so relevant, I thought, oh, Rishi Sunak would have been mentioning it more and more (laughs) in his his promotion of all things climate change. But There you go. We should send him a copy. We should. I mean, even even today, I was reading it yet again today, wildfires on uh, Tenerife. Yeah. 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 And they've said it's the the hottest September on record. Yes. Yeah. So that film absolutely is more relevant now than it was back in the day. Yeah, and anybody who wants to track it down, I think it's on the BFI channel, and also you can get the Blu-ray and DVD of it, and well worth it. And the sharp-eyed amongst you might spot a young Michael Caine in there. He was a policeman, wasn't he, I think? Yeah, directing traffic in the smog. I think, I think he's got about four lines. But the, the voice is unmistakable. I mean, you go, oh, you know, my name's Michael Caine. Yeah. And it is. And not many people know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mike Yarwood, where are you when we need you? Yes. Uh, he's dead. He's dead, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. he just died recently. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was listening well, to I his Well, I hope his family head. aren't listening. Um, <laughs> we loved him. What do you mean? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Let's skip from sci-fi to horror. And as obviously it's Halloween. So, Paul, what would make your perfect Halloween? Not only film, but setting, whatever. I quite like a relatively quiet Halloween. I tend to turn all the lights off so that no one knows I'm home. (laughs) So that no children come knocking on the door, pestering me for sweets. All right, okay. Um, So I can just watch ghost story films or horror films for a couple of hours, complete, you know, enjoy them, not getting the jiggle treat nonsense, which I can't abide. Um, <laughs> you know, that's for me, that that's my ideal Halloween, enjoying some good, good British horror films. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Older or more recent? Generally the older. Um, um, I, I, I don't dislike modern horror films. Don't, you know. But I tend to prefer the older ones, as you've pointed out in the past. Yes, yeah. All before my time. Yeah, but not Graham's. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm there to help. And indeed, we've spoken about your love of British horror and science fiction films, especially those from Hammer, which we're going to concentrate on tonight. What is it about those films that appeal to you? I think they have a certain style and charm certainly Mm. the earlier ones i think later on they lose the style they lose the charm i think because of changes of personnel um that the budgets hadn't really improved in 20 years the fact that um tastes had changed but they weren't necessarily changing with them um but certainly the earlier ones are just perfect examples of how to do 
low-budget filmmaking superbly well. Yeah. Um, you know, the early ones, when you look at them, just you can't believe that they made that film for that amount of money in that short space of time. They just had a way of making things look expensive. They just have very good technicians, very good set design, very good lighting. Um, you know, just 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 exactly how to make low budget film without it looking cheap. Once you get to the seventies, they start some of them do start looking cheap, and it and it goes very notable quite quickly when yeah. that happens. I, I'm thinking back to the first Dracula film they did with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and the sets and the design on that were just phenomenal, as you say. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, the the buildings around there, but also that fantastic finale in that dining room. That, yes. uh, you know, as they confront one another. It, yeah, it you just wouldn't believe that budget for that film. No, hundred hundred thousand pounds, shot in six weeks. Holy cow! And you think what? <laughs> and, and, and the different and it's interesting if you look at Curse of Frankenstein, just you know, a year before or, or something like that. Which was the you know the, what really put them on the map and was a huge hit. The difference between those two films in terms of how it looks, the technical is is a world apart. You'd think there were ten years, hmm. but literally almost overnight, they just clicked into this recipe that they just went ah okay, bump, and from that moment on, everything was just at least for the like you know ten years was just stunning. And it isn't until you really look at that Dracula, you realise how cleverly they work the budget because they kept reusing the sets. Yes. They just dress them slightly differently. And you don't, until you really look at it, you don't spot it. Yes. Once you spot it, you go, oh, hang on. That <laughs> staircase is that staircase. And those arches, those arches, but they've covered them with curtains now. And yes. Various things. But just, you know, how clever? Because at the time, no one noticed. Yeah. They just didn't. And even in double bills, so they did a double bill of, was it Plague of the Zombies and The Reptile, both filmed in Cornwall, both used the same sets, but you wouldn't think it to look at it. And they even put them together in this double bill, and they still fool people. Well, they didn't. I'm going to have to... No, I'm going to correct you slightly there. I mean, they they made two pairs of films back-to-back. Yeah. They made Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Rasputin the Mad Monk back-to-back. Yeah. Often, I think there's about four or five same cast members and they redressed the sets. Then they struck those. Then they built the Cornish sets to film Plague of the Zombies and the Reptile back to back. But so no one noticed that they'd done that. They paired Dracula up with, I think, Plague of the Zombies. Ah, and that's right. um, okay. with the Reptile. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so people wouldn't notice. Um, but yeah, but now you can. Yeah, yeah, and you see it. But only if you really pay attention. Yeah, yeah, and they used to, they went through that stage. You know, BBC Two used to do these late night horror films in the summer, and that's where I first saw many of these Hammer films. Same, same here. Absolutely, yeah, yeah me too. I yeah. must have seen the Peter Cushion one about ten times. Yeah, you know. they they'd have a Universal film and then a Hammer film, and yeah. this went on all yeah. through the summer. Yes, brilliant. Yeah, yeah that's where I, that's where I got my love of horror from. Was watching those late at night when I was about seven. And I and I love the Universal ones just as much as the Hammer. Yeah. It's, again, there's a style about them. There's a very, you know, very different. Again, they hit a recipe and they just milked it, but they knew what they were doing. Again, got a bit cheaper towards the end and, and not so good. So quite similar 
in many ways. And of course, Hammer made some of their films for Universal. Universal opened up their catalogue and said, we give you the rights to, you know, remake some of our films. But they couldn't do the makeup the same. That was no, the one thing. Exactly. And, yeah. And certainly. Uh, Curse of Frankenstein. If you look at the Frankenstein's monster in that compared to, say, what Boris Karloff did. Yeah, it's like his part. Mind you, Curse of Frankenstein scared the crap out of me as a kid, and (laughs) I still find it unnerving to watch. uh, Yeah, I've got to be honest. (laughs) But, you know, it looked like (laughs) we're going to the main part of the conversation in a minute, but it looked like a dead person brought back to life. Yes, yes. I I think that's the difference was that you look at the the universal monster and striking as it is and it's probably the most striking iconic makeup of, of that time the christopher lee creature is far more believable yes it you know it is literally just bits stitched together rather than this huge makeup um and i think lee's performance is is quite astonishing his use of mime yeah and his movements of course he doesn't speak um generates just as much sympathy as Karloff does, but in a different way. It's interesting you say that, because I still find that really scary. Where I had sympathy for Karloff, I had no sympathy for, for Lee, because I just found it so frightening. <laughs> interesting, because I'm, I'm the opposite. Um, I do have some sympathy for Karloff in Bride of Frankenstein, Yeah. Um, at the end of that particularly. But when you see how appallingly Cushing, as Frankenstein, treats... Chris Flea's monster. Yeah. One scene treating like a caged animal or something, you know, get up, get up. Yeah. And really quite unpleasant. And and Lee, you know, he's he shaped, had this brain transplant and shaved some of his head away. And he, yeah. and, he and he turns himself away to try and hide yes. what's happened to him. And I, I find that really quite moving and affecting. Because obviously he's although he can't speak, he's 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 realized that you know this awful thing's happened to him and he's he's ashamed of what he's become. Yeah. Right, I might have to brave things this Halloween and go back and watch this again. (laughs) My work here is done. Yes. (laughs) We speak about the sets with Hammer and how they redress them, but the actors kept turning up all over the place. Do you know what? There was a story, right? Um, Some point towards the end of the 60s, Sammy Davis Jr. was on an American chat show. I think the question was getting around, who's your favourite screen team? And, you know, they thought it might be all, you know, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, something like that. And he said, no, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Yeah. Uh, just amazing. And yeah. I think they did actually do something together. Oh, right. Um, Is that right? Yeah. Three of them? Yes. Or whether they made like a, a small appearance in something. I've definitely seen a photo of Sammy Davis Jr. and, and Christopher Lee. Oh, um, right. I'll have to check that out, but I think I think they did because he it liked them so much. He did arrange to do something. I'll have to check it out, but I, I'm, I'm sure there is. Wow, there we go. See, I take a story, and you've taken it to its <laughs> ultimate limit. There, yeah. But but that wonderful repertory of actors as well. You know, not only um, the obvious Peter Cushing uh, and Christopher Lee, but then you got people like Michael Ripper. Ah, oh, Michael Ripper. Oh. Fantastic. Um, we'll come back to him. And Michael Goff being another one, of course, who found fame with Tim Burton much, much later uh, uh, after these. But Michael Ripper, I first came across him and he first noticed him. There was a series um, 
I think even before you were born. It's the beginning of the 70s. And it was um, some late night Ted Slaughter thing that IDV did. Probably wiped them all now because that's what they did. <laughs> um, but Michael Ripper starred in every one of these four episodes they did. And they had this sort of gothic comedy about them. And, and that's how I noticed him. And I always made a point then for checking out views in these films. Wow. Okay. And what was that called? Late Night Theatre, it was called. Late Night Theatre. Oh, yeah. Wow. But he is one of those actors. It's so believable and so fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, as you say, part of the Hammer Repertory Company. He, I think he made more Hammer films than anyone else. Um, sometimes in quite large supporting roles, sometimes just little cameos yeah. in, in one or two scenes. Um, but prior to that, he'd done, um, I think he's, he's the lift man in, in the Centrinians series. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, if I'm rightly in all, in all yes, the great Centurion's yeah. train robbery. Yeah, yeah. Wow. he's lift man. He, he sort of speaks like that all the time, guys. You know, <laughs> um, but he, you know, he really, really good British character actor. But then that's what Hammer just, you know, they literally just shut their films. Some of the women were perhaps a little variable at times. <laughs> um, but but did they know, act? I didn't notice. Well, some uh, yeah. did, some didn't. Um, but other than that, you know, the, the quality of the the supporting cast they got really quite astonishing, uh, and I mean, at the time, of course, it, it was like they were considered slightly inferior, and a lot of them kept quiet that they were making a Hammer film. Um, but years later, when you uh, know it really took off and became the cult and the popular thing, they said, "Oh no, I'm very proud to have been in a Hammer film and all this." <laughs> but at, at the time, it they, you know it was really quite sneering. You know, oh dear, we'll, we'll have to do it. It's money and, and all the rest of it. Wait, Whereas wait, I think wait. Michael Ripper, I think just thoroughly loved it. Yeah, when you look at Christopher Lee, he'd done Dracula, refused to come back for Brides of Dracula, comes back in Dracula, Prince of Darkness all those years later. Now, this is where stories vary on what happened. He doesn't speak during the whole film. Now, I've heard two stories on this. One, yeah. he hated the dialogue and refused to speak it. Two, there never was any dialogue for him. Um, and the, I have seen portions of the script which seem to back that latter one up. Yeah. Jimmy Sangster said he never wrote any dialogue for Dracula. Um, oh. And he wrote the script, so, you know, you tend, tend to think he's right. Um, certainly in some of the later films, Chris Lee would refuse to say certain lines and change them. Yeah. Or slip a bit of original Stoker dialogue in from the book. Um, but, yes, Chris Lee always said the dialogue was so awful I, I refused to say it. Jimmy Sangster... Well, no, you didn't, because I never wrote you any in the first place. Um, because he basically said, it's an anticlimax. You know, you look at the first Dracula, once he's killed Harker, he never speaks again. He doesn't need to speak. We know who he is. He's much more sinister by not speaking. Yeah. If he starts uh, speaking, he becomes too ordinary yes. rather than otherworldly. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy Sangster didn't write him any, any dialogue. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, King of the Vampires. For ten years, his mortal remains were cherished by his faithful servant, awaiting the opportunity and a victim to provide the life force for the reincarnation of Dracula. But there's a thing from Hammond, I've been watching a couple of them in, in anticipation of, of our chat, and I find it's very class conscious. Yes. 
a very middle class. They hate the upper class, and Dracula is portrayed <laughs> as upper class. <laughs> you know, if you watch, if you watch the first Dracula, he is pretty annoyed that people have been on his territory. Right, that's it. You know, you don't go in an Englishman's castle or Romanian's <laughs> castle, <laughs> and it, it's. But it comes through it. We're going to talk about Curse of the Werewolf at some length, surely. And but even there, the main, the villain of the piece is this landlord, the the the, <laughs> the Baron, who you know he's the catalyst for the creation of the werewolf in a way. Oh yes, yeah, the the the, the Marquis is yeah. the Curse of the Werewolf. Absolutely, probably the most repellent character in any horror, in any Hammer film. Yeah, absolutely appalling. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. In in so many of the films, in Plague of the Zombies, the villain is Squire Hamilton. You know, it's as you say that it's generally the well-to-do do not come off well um, in Hammer films, as we said. It wins the Queen's Award for Industry. Yeah, and you're thinking, well, it's putting your class down a bit here, but yes. you're, you're missing this. Mind you, the poor don't come out of it. They come out as like thicko conspiracy theorists. So, um, uh, no change there, then. Yeah. <laughs> but then also, once you get to the um, 70s and horror starts becoming less popular, unless you're doing things like The Exorcist, you know, the really gory stuff, what do Hammer start doing? They flip the other around and make very cheap films of things like On the Buses. Oh, yeah. You know, which are, are very not class conscious at all in the sense that everybody is working class, lower class, whatever. And on the buses was their biggest money maker in the history of no the company. No way. Yeah. On on the buses yeah. was the most successful film in Britain that year in 1971. Yeah. It made Hammer a fortune and they yeah. made it for something like £90,000. It looks cheap as hell. Um, you know, but most of the 70s, they were doing film versions of on the buses um, Man about the house, you know. All that, that's that was you know that's what they moved into. Very yeah. little of the class stuff. But that's how they started, didn't they? They did. Um, uh, is it called Dick Barton? So yes. from the radio series they did, yeah. it. and then Quatermass, of course, on the BBC series. Yes. So so yeah, they they went literally back went back to what absolutely yeah yeah. It's fascinating. My dad's favourite Dick Barton on the radio. He would tell us stories of listening to that as a kid. Yeah, yeah it was huge, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, we we spoke about the the people who who turn up like um like Michael Ripper, but yeah, a lot of big actors got this start in Hammer movies. Oh yes, Oliver Reed. Yeah, Warren Mitchell, Lionel Jeffries. Yeah, Joanna Lumley um, was in oh, yeah. uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula. Satanic Rites of Dracula. Yeah. Um, Stephanie Beecham was in Dracula, AD nineteen seventy two. Dennis Waterman is in Scars of Dracula. As is Jenny Hanley. As is Jenny yeah. You know, so yes, an awful lot of young actors in particular got, got very good breaks from Hammer. Because they were cheap, because they were young and they were yeah. inexperienced. And, yeah. And I mean, Taste, Taste of Blood of Dracula's got Isla Blair and Martin Jarvis. <laughs> you know, when they were relatively young. Yeah, well. um, you know, so, so they were quite good at spotting future talent. But just, that's interesting because they seem very canny, you know, the cheap sets doing the back-to-backs, flipping things around, very clever, very uh, prudent about how they spend their money and spotting young stars. It's all, you know, these guys are smart. 
how did they end up with on the buses? What happened? What Hang on a minute. If it becomes the most successful British film of the year. Okay, right. right. Well, yeah, I can't get the prejudice out of my head. That, you know, this terrible film, yeah. Okay, yeah so. I, I think, you know, we look back at things, you know, with hindsight and all the rest. Um, you know, the fact they became, you know, a worldwide popular company through horror films was almost a chance. Yeah. You know, they they made Curse of Frankenstein. It became this huge hit, and someone said, "Hmm, should we do Dracula next?" And then, you know, boom, that was it. The path was set. But basically, they made what people wanted to see. Yes. It was a business. They they didn't think yeah. they were making high art. They didn't expect the films to still be watched 50, 60 years down the road. Quick, cheap, get them out. People enjoy them. Gone. Yes. You know, no one ever thought DVDs and VHS and Blu-rays and yeah. and all the rest would come. So, you know, 1970, what was big on television were sitcoms. Yeah. So they made them. Yeah. It's an interesting parallel here to the carry-on films. Again, the same thing. Yeah. Throw them out. But now you can look back at those films as a reflection of British society at the yes. time. Yes. Very, very, very much. documentary-style. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, part of that with Hammer, and we said about the class stuff, class erosion that had taken place since World War Two, and particularly as you got into the 60s, mm. where people felt they weren't getting the respect they deserved, yeah. was reflected in the Hammer movie. Yes, I agree. Wow. Okay, so obviously we're focusing on Hammer, and another reason we're focusing on Hammer is because I understand you knew scriptwriter Anthony Hines. I mean, he was Mr. Hammer writer. Uh, yes. Behind such classics as Curse of the Werewolf, which I'd seen recently, a uh, number of the Dracula and Frankenstein movies. Yeah. Um, what did Mr. Hines think of his fantastic legacy? <laughs> it's funny. I met Tony when he, obviously he was, what was he, 70, 71. Um, we were both in the same dramatic society. I was 18. And to me, he was just Tony. I, you know, I just, he was just Tony. Very nice chap, good actor. And then someone just happened to mention one day, oh, you know, he used to be something to do with Hammer Films. I went, what? <laughs> and, it, and it all just clicked in place. Hang on. Tony is Anthony Hines. And Anthony Hines was the son of the guy who founded the firm, whose stage name was Will Hammer, hence Hammer Films. And I thought, hang on. This is, this is the guy who produced uh, Quatermass Experiment. Yes. Um, um, and, and Dracula and Curse of Frankenstein. And basically it was he that kept the whole gothic thing going. He he was the one that really said, this is where the money is. This is what people want. We'll make more of these types of films. Yeah. And he produced them. Um, and then he started to tinker with the scripts, as a producer often does. He did some uncredited work on a couple of the films uh, before he started to write them fully. Um, I think Curse the Werewolf was his first one because they were going to make a film called Rape of Sabina, sometimes known as the Inquisitor, which is going to be set in Spain. And at the same time, they were also going to reuse the sets for a film um, based on the werewolf of Paris, oh. but relocate it to Spain so they could make use of the sets. <laughs> and uh, Rape of Sabina was cancelled. It, it was going to star Philip Latham and Kieran Moore. But they were so concerned about the uh, script and the censor, because it was due to the Spanish Inquisition, they scrapped it. And so they had to make the werewolf film. They had to tweak the script to make it fit the existing sets because they couldn't afford to write those sets off and build, you know. So to save money, because they'd already spent money on acquiring the rights to the book and various things, 
Tony thought, well, I'll just write the script for free. So Tony wrote the script under the name John Elder, okay. um, which was to get round union rules because, right. you know, you could, if you're a producer, you can't write as well. Not back in those days. You had to, you know, because oh, yeah. if you're the producer, you're, you're putting a writer out of work, aren't you? So yeah. no, 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 can't do that. So he started writing um, and he preferred the writing to the producing. But I mean, he always said to me that, you know, it was basically the family firm. So he went into it. Oh. Um, his uncle was Heinz the jeweller. Oh, right. So had he been born to that Heinz, he might yeah. have been a jeweller. Mm. But because he was Will's son, he went into the film business and he fell into it. And when he'd had enough, he fell out of it. He had no yeah. particular. Um, and I remember when we were doing, he wrote a couple of plays for us and we, we did them in Borton on the water. And to get publicity, he was happy to talk about his background hammers. But otherwise, his general thing was it was just a job of work. It really wasn't anything special. It was just his job. And generally, he had to pretend to be interested in when people asked him about them. It, but I, but then I suppose if you if you literally just think of it as a job of work, if you're a plumber, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. do you want to keep talking about it? Do you, yeah, you know, yeah. um, and it, you know, he he didn't have a high opinion of a lot of the films. Mm. He thought a lot of their films are quite atrocious <laughs> because they were churned out so quickly. Mm. Yeah, um, he was. I mean, because it's low budget, you had to do things quite quickly. And mm. and Tony would occasionally, if things were starting to run over, he'd go down and rip pages out of the script to keep it. Because I can't afford to run over, yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, Peter Cushman would be gassed at you know mm. Tony coming down and paid out, but he had to keep it moving. But as a writer, he hated having to do that, so he was mm. quite conflicted in mm. sort of production roles. So he was quite glad to do more of the the writing side. Um, and eventually, in like, at sixty nine seventy, he decided he'd had enough, and so he sold his chairs and, and pretty much retired. But interestingly. He still wrote occasionally um, for Hammer and for other companies. So writing was really the thing he he most enjoyed. But he was a, he was a great chap, um, very unassuming, very modest, very funny. Mm-hmm. Not your typical film sort of person at all. Or, you know, you just wouldn't ever think he was anything to do with um, showbiz. I suppose for the for the want of a phrase. Did he get on well with the the actors? Yes, and I, I think it's very interesting. If you read most Hammer books, the person who is always comes out as being everybody had a lot of respect for, a lot of time for was Tony. Yeah. Um, along with Terence Fisher as a director, he was he was very highly thought of. Um, whereas some of the other producers or executive producers or writers or directors, you know, some had their favourites and some sort of keen. Everybody generally says Tony Hines was just the nicest, nicest bloke. Many said he was probably too nice for the film business. Yeah. Um, you know, he, was, he was just a lovely bloke you could talk to, have an intelligent conversation with as a creative person. He understood what they were trying to do, whereas others didn't seem to care. Um, he did seem to care, even, even though he says it was just a job of work. His attitude was very much, you know, well, it may be job work, but I'm going to make sure it's done the best we can do it. Yeah, because work, if you're working with people like Christopher Lee, who was known to be a bit of a prickly customer, uh, as opposed to, say, Peter Cushing, who seems to be, you know, just generally an all-round nice guy. It must have been 
yeah, you, you're you're playing that balancing act, aren't you, at yeah, all yeah. times? Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting that once Tony went um, in back 1970, that's when you suddenly notice the decline in Hammer films. And certainly for the first 12, 18 months after he went, the films that were churned out were pretty ropey. They picked themselves back up again a bit. Um, but it does seem to be he was really the the guiding light, if you like. Um, and once he went, the, the rock started to set in. Being a producer, had a lot of responsibility in casting. And I think he was, you know, he brought people like Cushing in because he'd seen Cushing on television. He was a big TV star, Peter Cushing. Well, 1984. Yeah. And, and other BBC yeah. plays. Um, so he found Chris, he found Peter Cushing a very fussy actor in the sense that he probably cared a bit too much. He always wanted to make sure the props were absolutely the right things. So he had to have, if he was, if the film was set in 18, whatever, he wanted props that were absolutely right for the period. Yeah. He would go and speak, speak to his doctor to understand, well, if I had to cut someone's head off, whatever, how would I do it? And his scripts would be littered with notes. Um, and sometimes he put ideas for his costumes and wigs. He, he wrote a, a sequel to one, of, um, to one of the other films because he loved the cat so much. He was one of these people that Christopher Lee found really annoying in the sense that he could move, speak, light his pipe, do about three other things at one time. You know, Peter Cushing liked to have hands. He liked to keep his hands busy yes, I, and do I, things. Yes, All the, yeah. And the more, you know, the more you watch any of the films, he's always doing things with his hands, with props, whatever. Christopher Lee is the complete opposite. Hated props and just, you know, his arms very rarely move. He keeps very much, you know, unless he has to, they're there. Tony thought Christopher Lee was a ham. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, when, say, when we were doing one of the, his plays, he did an interview for the Gloucestershire Echo back in the day when there was a real Gloucestershire Echo. And um, yes. I, I have the, the, I have it here. And he, he says, um, Christopher Lee was a real old ham, a great performer who looked great as Dracula. I used to tell him that his greatest role was as the mummy. He didn't like that. <laughs> but when you watch The Mummy, you do see exactly what he means. The Mummy, the living dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. There is that one bit where he has dialogue with the high priest, but when he's the mummy, you know, he's only got his eyes to act with. Yeah. yeah. And his movements. But you do know exactly what the mummy is thinking. Yeah. You know, you know, that that, you know, I think some people denigrate Christopher Lee a little bit. Um, often because of the type of parts he played, that mm. you have to make them slightly larger than life. Mm. Yes. But he doesn't go over the top. No. Which is what you tend to equate a ham with. Yeah. 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 You know, Donald Sinden, the very fruity, and, 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 or, you know, Christopher Lee wasn't like that. But he had such a commanding voice. Mm. Um, but of course, the, the downside with that was Hammer tended to pigeonhole people. Michael Ripple was one of the few people they actually let play good guys, funny guys, policemen, villain, you know, the whole lot. Chris Lee only played a good guy, I think, twice. 
with Hammer. Devil rides um, out. Was Devil rides was out, was and um, the Gorgon. Yes, I think I think that's the only two. Yeah, Cushing was both good and bad because he had Van Helsing and, and and Baron Frankenstein, and then various other characters. So they allowed him a lot more variety, I think. But I think that's why Chris Lee got very fed up, um, you know, and said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that again. I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with that. It was because they really didn't give him the chance to do a bit more than he wanted. Yeah. I mean, he he only had a supporting role in their version of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes, I suppose that's, that was a, a good character, actually, if you think about it. Yeah, Sir Henry, yes. Yeah, but um, it was small. I mean, if you, Peter Cushing, who's... Sherlock Holmes, I think, is so underrated. Yes. That the fuss, you said about the fussiness that comes through in that character and the short temperedness of, of Holmes that's in, yes. the, in the stories. It's yes. all there in Cushing's performance. Yes. I, I think uh, really he was the sort of precursor to Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes, mm. which, is in try- favorite, which is my favorite, I have to say, um, in trying to get as much out of the books yes. um, and get the characters as accurate as Conan Doyle wrote. Mm. Um, because uh, Cushing was a real fan of Sherlock Holmes. And oddly enough, um, one of the last things Peter Cushing did was a film called The Masks of Death, which is a television film um, with Sir John Mills as, as Watson when they were much older, an older Holmes, an older Watson. And the person that wrote the script for that was Tony Hines. All right. All right okay. Because Tony was also a mad Sherlock Holmes fan. <sighs> So, yes, they had quite a lot in common. Amazing. Amazing. Any other stories, uh, uh, Tony Hines, that you've you got to share with us? No, he was he was quite reticent. Um, I think he was happy to sort of talk about things in a general way. Mm. But I think he was, he was not the sort for gossip, um, right. which I think a lot of film people are. Mm. Um, you know, he... he, he, he you know, he tell you a bit about filmmaking, but he, he, if you said, "Oh, no, how's that?" Oh, yeah, they were they were fine, and that was sort of it. You never got much more, yeah. Um, which actually, I think, is quite a nice way to be in 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 many respects. I know Michael Ripper was a very great friend. They used okay. to go sailing together, and I and I think Michael Ripper might actually have been his best man at his wedding. Oh, right. I think so. I know. I know Michael Ripper was was certainly a very great friend. How do you think you would react to like it, every year there's a new book comes out on Hammer, a new retrospective. There's talk of reviving Hammer again. I think there's um, uh, a new version of Dr. Jekyll coming out yes. uh, later this year. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think he would react to all of this? I think he'd be bored, mm. honestly, um, which is probably strange. Um, you know, when Mark Gatiss did a series on on horror and Hammer for television about 12, 13 yeah, years ago, yeah. um, and he, he did interview Tony in it, um, and Tony hadn't done many interviews, and the Hammer community was like, oh, you know, Tony speaks, Tony speaks, you know, because he didn't do those sort of things very often. So I think actually he'd be fairly nonplussed, and I think he'd be the, but well, as a lot of people do actually, um, you know, there have been Hammer films of, I mean, the Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe was a Hammer oh, film, yeah, yeah, um, and obviously there's it's just been sold again. You say this the new um, Doctor Jekyll, but it's very unlike the previous Hammer. It's Hammer in name, but it's not Hammer as it was hmm. because they used the same 
you know, group of directors, actors, technicians, lighting guys, set designers, costumers for years and years and years and years. They might make eight films a year. I mean, the idea of a studio is making eight films a year. Now is just what? Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a lot of people say it was, it was like a family. They had, a, you know, they had a canteen and everyone ate in together. Yeah. You know, I mean, that that sort of I mean, that, that would never happen now. And I think yeah. Tony probably was the right man at the right time. Um, but as I say, once he left it, apart from writing a few scripts, he never went back into film production or work with any company. He'd go to a set if they were making Mm-hmm. You know, some of the scripts, but otherwise he he kept well away. I I just don't think filmmaking generally. Um, yes. it, you know, so I say it was just that work. But some of those later scripts, as I want to talk about, because when I first started going regularly to the cinema in the mid seventies, there was um, a double header of horror movies that I saw that really struck me. And I again, when preparing for this, I found out that um, Tony Hines. Uh, written the script on both of them. In fact, they were both directed by Freddie Francis as well. But they were for a rival company. So Hammer was that successful. You got things like Tyburn Pictures, which we're going to talk about now, but Amicus as well. All of these companies came up in the wake of Hammer. And the the two in particular that stuck with me were The Ghoul and Legend of the Werewolf, both written by Tony Hines. And Legend of the Werewolf in particular is strikes me as what he originally wanted Curse of the Werewolf to be, because it is set in Paris and it's got that feel to it. Uh, have you seen it, Paul? I have, you... not for a very long time. I see. I, I remember not liking it a great deal. Um, I think Peter Cushing is, as always, excellent um, and has a lot of fun with his sort of police inspector role. But Ron Moody plays yes. a strange z- flea-bitten zoo. Yeah. It's absolutely the most bizarre performance. It's, it's, ju- it's, it's just just over-the-top, ridiculous. And, you know, he keeps making these jokes at the end of which he goes, beep, beep, and you what? <laughs> what? what, what, what? <laughs> it's just bizarre. I think you're right. I, I think there was an element of trying to recapture some of the werewolf of Paris about it. Yeah. I think the problem with Tyburn, obviously, Freddie Francis, uh, Tyburn was set up by his son, Kevin Francis. Right. I think they only made three or four films in the end. Um, Freddie Francis didn't particularly like horror films. Is that right? Yeah. And yet he directed loads of them. I think the first thing he did was Eva Frankenstein for Hammer, which was written by Tony. Yeah. And it's the only Frankenstein Hammer made that wasn't directed by Terry Fisher, at least of the, the proper ones. We don't include horror Frankenstein with Ralph Bates, which is an appalling film. But certainly yeah. of all the Cushing ones. But Freddie Francis directed that, and he said he didn't enjoy it because he doesn't have a feel for, for that gothic. Right. But I, I gather he got on very well with Tony, which is why Tony agreed to write these two scripts for uh, Kevin Francis, because Freddie was going to direct. Uh, um, the Ghoul is the more interesting of the two films, I think. It's a more interesting script, um, yeah. and I think has a better cast. Oh, it's great cast. Peter Cushing, John Hurt, Don Henderson, yeah. Alexandra Bastido. Yeah, Veronica Carlson. Yeah. From Hammer. Yeah. Um, the ending lets it down a bit. It is um, weird. So, Graham, uh, there's no way on earth you would have seen this. So it's it's set in the 1920s. Um, these people in their, in their 20s are having this car race. They end up at this mansion in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. uh, which Peter Cushing owns. 
Um, and I think John Hurt's the gardener, isn't he? Very yes. dodgy gardener. Yeah. Um, and they get to stay there. But there's something else in the house that's killing them one by one. Oh, the right. ghoul of the title. Which is basically Peter Cushing's cannibalistic son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who is Don Henderson, painted green, wearing a giant nappy. <laughs> You're not saying this to me. Pretty much. <laughs> Um, it seems to me because there are elements of um, Indian mysticism in it. Because Gwen Watford plays a, uh, and Tony loved India. It was it oh, was a really? country he loved a lot, and he also wrote a script for Hammer that they didn't do, a Dracula set in India. Oh wow! Which um, Mark Gatiss recently did for yes, really um, four. Yes, this. yes, yeah, yes. That was a that was a Tony script, and oh, that would have been quite interesting, I think, to have seen that done. Um, but yes, I mean Tyburn. You know, trying to do ham- Hammer at a time when Hammer was starting to go under. The writing was already on the wall. Um, mm. It was a very strange move of theirs to, you know, to try and do more of the same type of thing when it wasn't really working for Hammer. Um, you know, within a couple of years, all those companies are gone. Carry On had went, Hammer went, Tyburn went, Tigan went, Amicus went. You know, they all boom, 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 like a row of dominoes. Public taste had just changed and, and those companies didn't change with it. And I thought in the 70s, Amicus are doing some of the more interesting work. Some of the portmanteau things like yeah. Tales from the Crypt and Vault yeah. of Horror uh, are, are excellent films. Yes. Uh, and it's interesting because although some of the 70s Hammer films are noticeably cheaper, I mean, there's, I think there's six months between Taste the Blood of Dracula, which Tony wrote, and Scars of Dracula, which Tony wrote. And yet one looks really classy and well-made. Yeah. And the other one... It just looks cheap, nasty, poorly made. And yet six months, same company, and it's just but Tony left between those two films. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the bat effects in Scars of Dracula. Awful. Oh, yeah. uh, but once they sort of pick themselves up again, they did a lot of really interesting films in the 70s. You know, they tried new things. Um, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. It's a good film. Which I think yeah. is is much underrated, made by um, Fennel and Clements, of course, from The Avengers and, and all that. Um, and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which I think is a fabulous film. Ralph Bates and Martin Beswick. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and just some really interesting stuff going on. Vampire Circus. Fifteen years ago, we thought we'd killed a demon. But he's been waiting to kill us. Fifteen years, cousin Metahouse. But now we are here to free you. To give you life. But must they all die? All! Um, That's a great film. And to speak about cast, I mean, you look at that cast, you've got, is it Lala Ward's in it? Yeah. Um, Thorny Walters. Adrian Corey. Yes. Yeah. It's an amazing film. And um, what's his name? A uh, guy who went on to have a recurring role in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and also played the villain in Young Sherlock Holmes. Anthony Higgins. Anthony Higgins. Although he went, yeah. he went by the name Anthony Corlan for some reason when he made yeah. um, Vampire Circus. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating film. Often they're a bit flawed, but at mm. least they're not churning out. Oh, it's yet another version of yeah. that. They are trying new things. Uh, and what what Tony didn't like about a lot of them after he'd gone was that they upped the nudity content. Oh, when Tony time. was around, there was cleavage, and that was it. And he actually said once, you know, I went, tits came in. Um, <laughs> there is a scene in Vampire Circus where he's, the, the 
guys trying to tame this wild cat. But it's not yeah. a wild cat. It's a woman painted, a nude painted in the, uh, uh, like a cat. And it becomes an almost sexual dance between yes. them. In fact, yeah, it's, yeah, there's nothing left to the imagination. It still gets an eighteenth certificate today, vampire series. Yes, it does. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of. In- I think people write off Seventies Hammer because it's not the classic, classic days of. Yeah. But actually, I think that's very unwise. They they did some very interesting stuff. It's the Dracula things where they 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 went wrong, where you know where they bring, brought it up to date. And I think Christopher Lee's famous quote at the time, and I'm paraphrasing this. I don't know the exact words is. Oh, what's next for Dracula then? Is he going to catch a number 49 bus? Because um. <laughs> the original title for Satanic Rites of Dracula was something like Dracula is alive and well and living in London. Okay. Yeah. And Chris yeah. Lee said, you know, what's, you know you've, got, you've got a comedy title, but the film isn't a comedy. Yeah. yeah. They were quite derided at the time. These days among Hammer aficionados, Satanic Rites of Dracula is quite highly thought of. And there's a good reason for that. At the centre of Satanic Rites of Dracula is Dracula thinking, well, I can never win, so I'm going to destroy the Earth. Yes. And it's all to do with the releasing of a plague. Yeah. Um, it's it's so a very interesting concept yeah. for that. I think the problem is, because it's made in 1973, 74, you've got all the 70s trappings and people wearing like, you know, the, the, a biker gang of villains wearing sort of sheepskin jackets and things and the score <laughs> is very, you know, wah, wah, wah music. Had that been made at another time, yeah, without the seventies trappings, um, I think it might have done better. But the central conceit of Dracula wanting to like make sure that there aren't any people left for him to kill, so he actually is able to to die, in yes. effect, yes. is really quite an interesting one. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But I think the other thing at that time, and this is why all the companies were suffering. American horror was taken back over again. You'd had <clears throat> Night of the Living Dead, The Exorcist. You know, horror was changing. Yeah. And Hammer's attempt at changing were, were two films, really. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, taking yes. effect of the Kung Fu craze. Yes. Um, <laughs> and bringing back in Dennis Wheatley to The Devil of Daughter, crashing yes. on what The Exorcist was doing. Yeah. But to The Devil of Daughter is a deeply unpleasant movie to watch i mean it has some powerful images in there but you you're thinking you know natasha kinski i think i think she kept her clothes on for two scenes um there's only one scene where she's nude oh is there okay there's only the one <laughs> but yeah i mean but yes there's, yeah. Other, there's other nudity in it yes oh, yeah um Again, yeah you got a cast that includes richard whitlock oh, in this phenomenal film. cast yeah and a lot, it's interesting, a lot of people think it failed, and actually it did very well. Is that right? I, I must admit, I thought it failed. Because um, Hammer had to do co-productions at this point, because they couldn't finance things on their own, they didn't make enough on it, uh, in effect, no. to, to capitalise on it. A lot of the money went to Germany, because it, it was it was part funded by uh, a German company. But yeah, Christopher Lee, one of his best performances, yes, absolutely yeah, terrifying yeah. as this, this satanic priest. But then you've got Anthony Valentine, Honor Blackman. Yeah. You know, re- as again, really good cast. Mm. But the problem was they had a script by Christopher Wicking. And he didn't have a lot to do with the Dennis Wheatley book, which Dennis Wheatley was very unhappy with, understandably. But a lot of Christopher Wicking's scripts make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this was oh, no exception. And they kept rewriting it as it was going along. 
Oh, and the, produ- no. the producer would get phone calls from Richard Widmark at, at 2am in the morning threatening to quit. And the producer would have to go around and placate Richard Widmark, who referred to Hammer as Mickey Mouse Productions. <laughs> and um, it was their last but one film. Yeah, so it wasn't that far. Away. What was the last one? So that was their last horror. Yeah. But uh, a couple of years later, Michael Carreras... Um, who had one time been sort of oh, equal. Lady Vanishes. The Lady Vanishes. Yes. Which actually is a perfectly good great film. Yeah. Great film. Yeah. It's not, you know, people compare it to Hitchcock because they always do. Actually, it's a perfectly good film. Yeah. It's well made. It looks beautiful. You actually see it in widescreen. It's stunning. It's got a lovely score. It's got a fabulous cast. The script is by George Axelrod, who did stuff for Billy Wilder. You know, yeah. it's, it's a quality film. But unfortunately, they had problems during the making of it, and Carreras had pulled off it, and that's when Hammer went. That was sort of the end of it. But it was the last film then until, you know, the likes of Woman in Black, which actually said a Hammer film. Ah, uh, right. I've forgotten about that one. Had it, had it done well, because, I mean, you know, it came out the year after Robert Powell's 39 Steps. Yeah. They're both, I thought, really good Sunday afternoon matinee films. You whack them yeah. on, and they're just really nice to watch. Yeah. They're well-acted. Well made. They're great. I think had that made a lot of money, it would be interesting what Hammer did next, because then, of course, they went back into television. Yes. Yeah, they made that series, didn't they? The Hammer House of Horror for TV. Some of which, some episodes of that are very, very good indeed. Yes. Mm. Uh, Again, yeah, they they do scare the hell out of you, some of those episodes. Really good. Just want to go back to Lady Vanishes for a moment, so I had forgotten about that one. The relationship between Elliot Gould and Sybil Shepherd, how it comes across on screen, was brilliant. I yeah. really like like the two characters. They reverse what the what was done in Hitchcock's film. Yes, um, I, yeah, I thought that was very cleverly. Yes, actually, you know, and I, you know, it's sort of got that edge of screwball comedy to it, yeah. but not going too far with it. Yeah. And then you've got Herbert Lom, Angela Lansbury, Gerald Harper, and then you just have a joyous pairing of Ian Carmichael and Arthur Lowe as the cricket mad charters and Coldcock, who are just fabulous. And I think they're better than the ones in the Hitchcock. I agree. I I, agree. I, they're just, just fabulous. Yeah. Um, it was a shame it went. Obviously, not a horror, which is what we're here to talk about. Uh, no, but, no, but... You know, yeah. as a last film for Hammer, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. One of the fun ones, the last ones for me, was uh, Legend, the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. I just think that, <laughs> that's so barking, Matt, and it's brilliantly entertaining. Yeah, yeah, with the vampires that are almost bouncing around. Yes, yes, they're sort of like zombies, zombie yeah. vampires, aren't they? They yeah. sort of come out the ground and they do this strange shuffle. Yeah, I seem to. But but yes, I mean, again, like I say, they were trying new things at least. Yeah. Yes. Amicus and Time were just doing the same old. Yeah. Amicus actually doing quite, you know, doing some interesting, but they were just very much the hammer mold. Hammer at least were trying new things to keep going. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the films that they never got to make, I'd love to have seen. Oh, I the mean, Amiga Man. Uh, not the Amiga Man. Um, I Am Legend. Yes. Yeah. 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 And um, Zeppelin versus Pterodactyls. And Nessie. Oh, Nessie. Nessie, okay. which was obviously, you know, sort of I mean, a Godzilla King Kong type of thing. Wow. With a Japanese co-production. I think Brian Forbes wrote a script for it. Right. And Toho that made the Godzilla things did yeah. actually create a, a million dollar or a million yen uh, Nessie model. And they shot some footage for it, which has never been seen. But the plug got, the plug got pulled on that as well. 
um, around 1970, I think it was about 1976 sort of time. Yeah. Um, I think because King Kong, the 1976 version flopped. Yeah. That was when that got the plug. But, you know, that could have been quite interesting. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And, and, yeah, and some of the stuff, again, yeah, back in the 60s. Um, just before I go on to talk about something else on this, um, it's interesting to contrast the the two Dennis Wheatley ones. We yep. talked to the devil's daughter, but to me, the devil rides out. What Brilliant a fantastic film. Story. Absolutely fabulous film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apart from the spider, I hate them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not keen on spiders. No. Um, I, I know people go on occasion about the special effects were a little bit disappointing, but we are talking about 1967. Um, and also, people forget, back in those days as well, of course, there was a British board of censors and scripts had to be approved. Yeah. And they could make you take scenes out and make you change dialogue. You weren't allowed to blasphemes sometimes, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, which made making films very hard. And it very hard to have made The Devil Rides Out any earlier than they did because of how anti-Satanism and, and things like that, that the, the censorship people were about. Um I think Devil Rides Out is is one of their best films of the 70s. The Devil Rides Out, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's famous novel, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. All you think quickly, back to back, join hands. You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. Terry Fisher firing on all cylinders, Christopher Lee, brilliant. Um, but, you know, particularly Charles Gray as the villain is yeah. just knockout. <laughs> and interestingly, nothing like the character in the book. I haven't read the book. In the book, the character is, is, is a, a sort of a fat, obese, ugly person. And Tony wanted to cast Gert Frober. Oh, right. Yeah. Best known as Goldfinger. Yeah. Um, and someone had the sense, I don't know who it was, to say, I think Charles Gray would be better. You want some more urbane and sinister to go against Christopher Lee. By God, were they right? Yeah. Because he, he pretty much walks off with that film. You know, that's quintessential Hammer. They, they they picked it up and they put it into, they took Dennis Wheatley and dropped it into their world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Every... Richard Matheson did the script. Yeah. So, you know, you, you get a good writer to do a good script. From a fairly, I mean, it's probably one of his better books. I mean, they, they've all dated quite badly, Dennis Wheatley. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's a really rattling good film that moves along at a heck of a pace. And I think that's what's so good about the Hammer films generally is that they don't waste time. Most yeah. of them are sort of 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. the devil writes out one hour 36. Yeah. There yeah. You go. Right. Double build everything. Yeah. So you yeah. got two, two for the price of one. Yeah. And very little fat, you know, bum 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 the best ones. Obviously, obviously, Dracula, you had to leave out a lot of the book. Um, but when you watch it, you don't really think, oh, isn't there a whole bit of on board the boat? And all that, because it just it just keeps moving so much, you forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jonathan it Harker's three characters combined. Yeah. Yes, in, 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 in the Hammer film, he knows that Dracula, Dracula's a vampire. In the yeah. book, he hasn't got a clue. No, no, he hasn't. You know, and you say they, they do merge characters together in books quite successfully in a, in a lot of the films. Did you know that the Hammer films inspired Roman Polanski to make uh, The Fearless, Fearless Vampire, Vampire Killers? Killers. Yes. Yeah. Which, oddly enough, I don't like. 
<laughs> it's a strange film. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I've tried several times and I just, just can't quite. I sort of, I, I, can, I sort of admire it yeah. in a way, but I don't quite like it. But I, but it's one of those things. I wish I did. I can sort of see what you know where it was going. What, but some, I don't know why. It just, it just never, never quite gets me. Yeah. So the story, Graham, is yeah, I don't know. Um, Polanski had, was in a London cinema and they were showing Hammer films, and people were laughing at them because. There's a campiness, a humour. It's it's brilliant with them, and he couldn't work out why they were laughing. But so he thought about it, and he made his comedy, and he he made the vampire film as a comedy, and that's where it rubs up against it. The Hammer films aren't meant to be that funny, but they have that natural air about them. Yeah, and Polanski was trying to create that, and he couldn't do it. Mm, um, yeah. Although it has a great ending, I love the ending. It, the yes, it does have a great ending, and it looks very good. You know, it really—it's a very good-looking film. Yeah, yeah, definitely one to to track down. So, <clears throat> we spoke. Um, we've mentioned as we've gone through this about the Hammer Ladies, and um, as you say, they were glamour in the sixties, tops off in the seventies, <laughs> no all as far towards the end. Um, which of them made an impression on you and why? I think, um, I mean, a lot of people about Ingrid Pitt. Yeah. Um, bless Ingrid Pitt was a fan favourite. Um, and, you know, she was a very irrepressible character. I don't think she was the greatest actress in the world. She was okay. Um, in Countess Dracula, they dubbed her, which they did with a lot of females in Hammer films. Um, and you know she's often talked about the Queen of Hammer. She only made the two films, that and the Vampire Lovers. Yeah, thing. yeah. And for me, the Queen of Hammer is Barbara Shelley. Yeah, who's in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, The Gorgon, Quatermass and the Pit, um, several other films. I thought she was an abs. She was a superb actress. I mean, she went and did stuff for the RSC. You know, you don't do that unless you're your quality goods. Um, whatever role she played, she was totally believable in. Um, really, really good actress. Veronica Carlson, who did several of the Hammer films, um, very striking. Again, was a very lovely person in real life. Very talented art, um, sketch artist. Um, Madeline Smith um, yeah. did three films. Uh, so she did Vampire Lovers. She did Vampire Lovers, which I think she, she was dubbed in. Frankenstein the Monster from Hell. Yes, and a tiny bit in Taste the Blood of Dracula. Okay. Um, in Frankenstein Monster from Hill, I think I think she gives a, a stunning, a really, really good performance um, as the as the mute girl. Um, yeah. And again, like Ron Carson, she's an absolute angel. She's the most gorgeously lovely, wonderful, friendly, warm person you will ever ever meet. Yeah, isn't it funny though? As you're saying that it, the Dracula film sort of petered out in the seventies. Whereas Frankenstein, the monster from hell, is a real high movie to go out on. It is. It had a tiny budget. Yeah. Um, had I think had like one hundred and thirty thousand, which was only thirty thousand more than Dracula. Fifteen years later. Yeah, yeah. And they had to have all the sets on one stage at the studios. Um, and it was. Uh, so Tony did it deliberately so that all the sets were very it more or less takes place in the one place the asylum and so you could get away with small sets and all built 
Um, and Terry Fresher came back. It was the last thing he directed. He'd not directed for a while. Um, and it's 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 a really good little film. Oh, brilliant film. Yeah. Really good film. Very, you know, by now, Cushing's Frankenstein's is, is completely insane. Yeah. And, and interestingly, he is running the asylum. The <laughs> asylum director is only there because Cushing allows him to be because it hides Cushing. You know, it hides the fact that he is still alive. But the, the Baron is basically running the asylum. You know, it, how, how brilliant is that as a concept? Yeah. You know, the, he is insane and he's running the asylum. Right? Brilliant. And, and Madeline Smith is, is, is fabulous in it. The only thing that lets it down is, is the design of the monster. Um, yeah, Dave Prowse, isn't it? Dave Prowse and this giant sort of strange, um, hairy fat suit. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, Charles Lloyd Pack, Bernard Lee, Simon Ward. You know, even for you know a cheap film like that, they would still get a good cast. Yeah, yeah. As I said, it goes out, goes out in a high. Yeah, real high. Now, one of the other charms that we haven't spoken about yet was the music. Ah, oh, the music by James Bernard. Ah, uh, you know, is genius. He almost literally says Dracula in the score. He did that quite a lot. So, yes, Dracula. Dra da da. The Dracula. Um, Frankenstein must be destroyed. It's similar. It always does the syllables out. And he'd have these recurring motifs. Um, but he could do the real tense, dramatic stuff and then produce these beautiful sort of love tunes. Yes. Um, which you think, where's that? What? And they're just so. You know, Taste the Blood of Dracula is a fabulous score. It's one of his. And the, the main theme for the two young lovers is just beautiful. But what he could do with a small orchestra, because they didn't have big budgets for orchestras, no. yeah. you know, and they had to work very quickly, as all film composers do. I seem to think that on Quatermass Experiment, the budget was so low, he could only have strings. Wow. <laughs> he was not allowed. And, and you go listen to it, and you do not notice the fact that it is all no. strings. So there's no piano, it's, no brass. No. Wow. No woodwind, no, it's all strings. Oh, but you, yeah, and you've got to be a good composer to get away with that. You're saying about his sort of more gentle themes, his theme for She? Oh, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, Which, um, and She's a lovely film. I yes. still can't understand why that's not been released on a Blu-ray. No. No, with Ursula Andress as well. Yeah. With, with all that the publicity yeah. around it. Yeah, it's, it's a very good-looking film. Yes, do you know the story of um, James Bernard and when he read the novel Dracula? No, do tell. In the 40s, he was in the RAF during World War II. And he was there one night and it was really cold in a barracks where they were. So the hot water bottles and things they had, to up, they were metal. And he was reading Dracula and he fell asleep reading the book. And the sort of hot water bottle, if you like, the iron, touched on his neck, leaving two marks there the next morning. She said that cemented my love of uh, <laughs> No, I, I, I mean, that again, it's you know, Tony and other producers were very good at finding the right people, you know, people like him and some of the other, you know, he wasn't the only composer, but he certainly did the most. Um, some of the other composers they had were, were fabulous, um, but you know, they're lighting guys, Jack Asher. 
Tony had to fire Jack Ash in the end because he was too slow. Um, but he did all the, the earliest Curse of Frankenstein. Um, yeah. I think I think Brides of Dracula might have been his last one, which is one of the most gorgeous looking films oh, they ever made. Yeah, just beautiful. Um, Bernard Robinson doing those sets. You know, they they knew what they were doing. These guys. Yeah. And James Bernard was a really first rate composer. Yes. I think some years later he um, did a, a score to go for for Nosferatu. He did. Yes, I've, um, I've got that score. Yeah, it's really good. Very clever. Yeah, he. I think he scored one of his last. His last one was Legend: of The Seven Gun Vampires. That was yes. Uh, score. And I think, if I'm rightly, just as, a, as a, one of those strange sort of quirky film facts, his partner was Paul Dane. Yes. Who wrote, among other things, the screenplay for Murder on the Orient Express? Yes, of course he did. The seventies one, not the, yes, the recent. Yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Among other things, and I think he also Paul Dane also wrote something for Hammer back a, a sort of war film back in the fifties or sixties. Oh wow! I think I'll have to check that out. But I think so. Yeah, oh, there's all these little parallel yeah. connections. So it all comes together. Yeah. So this is fascinating. I've gone all night, but obviously <laughs> you need to bring this to a close. So the question to put you on the spot. What what are your personal favourite Hammer movies? God, there's a lot. Um, I think generally they didn't make a lot of really bad films. There are a few mm. that are absolute stinkers, but generally, for the types of films they are and all the rest, mm. you know, they're quite good. Um, I adore Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Um, I think it's one of the first ones I ever saw, which is probably why. Um, I think it's one of those very good ones. If someone's never seen a hammer, it's a good place to start. It's a sort of quintessential one. Mm -hmm. You don't have Cushing, but you have got Lee. You've got a very linear plot. You've got a brilliant um, replacement for Van Helsing in Andrew Keir's vampire hunting monk. I think it's such a shame we never saw him again in another film, because I thought he was great. Um, But a particularly very good turn from Philip Latham as the manservant Clove who has some of the best dialogue in any Hammer film. My, things like, uh, my, my master died without issue, sir, in the accepted sense of the term. <laughs> um, and, and the way he delivers, and, and he's just this very musty, grey, and oddly enough, I knew him slightly. He lived he lived near me in Star the World, and he was another fabulous chap. Um, that's, and Barbara Shelley is superb in that. Yeah. She's a very prim, upright Victorian lady who then ter- gets bitten and turns into this incredibly sexy, ferocious female vampire. Yeah. Lovely, lovely part from her. Um, I love Plague of the Zombies. Yeah. Um, the central scene where the zombies come out of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. If George A. Romero didn't nick that, it's a <laughs> heck of a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and it's a superb scene. And you have Andre Morel, who is brilliant in anything. He makes with Hammer. Great Watson in Hound of the Baskervilles. I love Captain Clegg. Um, I've not seen that one. Which is not really a horror. It's a sort of daring do film um, based on the Doctor Sin novels. Is that the one um, with Patrick McGowan? Well, Disney made one with ah, Patrick McGowan right, yeah. at the same time. Yes. And yeah. Hammer had a problem because they bought the rights. At the, and there was a very convoluted thing. And Disney said, you can make your film as long as you don't call him Dr. Sin. So they renamed the character Dr. Bliss. 
call the film Captain Clegg, which is his alter ego. It's basically a pirate who turns good and disguises himself in the village as a vicar. And Peter Cushing has a time of his life. Brilliant. It's an, and it, he is fa- and it's a really, really good... I, check that out. It's a really good 90-minute yeah. fab film. Yeah. Um, I love The Lady Vanishes. I think that's a really yeah. good film. Yeah. But I put in a, a special one for a film called Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. Another which is a very lesser-known one, made around 1960. It was based on a play about child abuse. Oh. And it was very controversial at the time. But a bit like um, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, it's very prescient. Because yeah. basically, the person who commits the abuse, people refuse to believe because his family owns the factory in this small town. And so if anything happens to him, they all lose their livelihoods. So they, they basically, people cover up for it. They keep quiet about it. Ooh. They've all known it for years, and they but they keep it quiet. Wow. And into this town come Patrick Allen, um, Gwen Watford, and Janina Fay, uh, who's a child actor, who's absolutely astonishing performance. I think she was nine or ten. Um, and Felix Aylmer is the the child abuser and he never speaks a word and it's a terror it's not a horror film it's a drama but in its own way it is horrific and terrifying and it's a superbly made film and it a lot of people thought it was hammer being all you know a bit controversial trying to cash in doing this awful subject and it wasn't they made it dead straight they didn't make it to be salacious which it could have been it's very, very straight down the line. And everyone in it is superb. Niall McGuinness, um, Michael Gwynn. It's, it's, it's a really superb film that so many people don't know. Yeah, it I gets shown know. occasionally on talking pictures. Um, they often use the American title, Never Take Candy from a Stranger. Okay. And it's set in Canada. But Tony produced it, and he always said it's the film of which he was most proud. Wow. Because it actually had a message, it had a point yeah. to it, it wasn't just entertainment. And I think what? that was it quite upset him that actually that it didn't do that mm. people talked it down. Um I'm amazed they got that past the censors. Oh they yeah, it was quite tricky. They had to, you know, um they went through the script with a fine tooth and said, No, she can't say that. She can't say that. You can't suggest that. You can't you, you know, so they had to be very, very careful on it. And it you know, if they got it wrong, it could have been salacious or it could have been very weak. They take mm. too much out of it, doesn't work. And it, it's it's still a very powerful film. Black and white, so I do like a bit of black and white. There's something mm. more, yeah, yeah, dramatic in a way, and it really yeah. works. Through. But that's that must really... it must rattle along. One hour twenty one minutes. Yeah, yeah. Wow, it's it's cool. a really good good film. It's a horrific without it being horror, um, and it does not have a, a nice ending. Mm. I should be checking that out for talking pictures soon. Yeah, Grab do it's it's, it's a really good film. Well, as I said, I could go on for hours <laughs> on this. And yeah. <laughs> um, Paul, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this fascinating subject. And to finish on a film that not only I've not heard of is now oh. on my must see list. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what about you? Do you have any upcoming plans, or are you uh, in rest stage at the moment? Uh, rest stage at the moment. Um, you know, just ha- having a bit of a time out, but early next year I'll probably get back to, to something interesting. 
Excellent. Well, if there's anything we can do to promote what you're doing, yeah. please give us a shout. We'll put yeah. it on to the shows. Thank you, chaps. Oh, thank you. And uh, have a very happy Halloween. And you. Thank you, thank you very you. much. Cheers. Cheers.